Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week, I am delighted to be joined by Professor Susanna Lipscomb, who is an award-winning historian, a prolific author, an outstanding broadcaster, and an old friend. Susanna has written and edited seven books and has so many accolades to her name, I'm going to have to put them in the show notes, as otherwise this introduction would be absurdly long. We're talking about learning lessons from history, things like perspective, and as well, we're talking about the effect of the suppression of what's known as the feminine principle, as has happened over the last few millennia. We're also going to be talking in the first half about Susanna and her thoughts on developing focus, getting in flow, digital minimalism and embracing boredom, the importance of making complex concepts understandable, developing empathy and putting yourself into other people's shoes and much more besides. It was an absolute pleasure talking to Professor Lipscomb and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Professor Susanna Litscombe. Susie, how are you? I'm very well, Sai. How are you? I'm very well. It's wonderful to have you on the show. You're very welcome. Thank you. It's just I was just giggling at you calling me professor. I think you were marked out to be a professor from an early age. Yes, we should probably come clear, actually. So we did go to school together and we were in the same English class. So it doesn't surprise me in the slightest that you are a professor. You were bright and studious, whereas I was primarily a gobby so-and-so. You were mischievous and lots of fun. Oh, bless you. But anyway, now you're an award-winning historian. You are, I mean, a seriously prolific author, broadcaster too, podcast as well, with your fantastic Not Just the Tudors on History Hit. So listen, you're busy, aren't you? Yeah, you could say that. I'm really interested in your busyness because I have found it very challenging writing one book which as you know is coming out relatively soon you're on what seven so I've edited two so I've written five I'm writing my sixth and I've also written four and edited two so yes this is kind of book number eight with my name on the cover book number eight what's your working practice as it were how do you structure your time 
to be able to write that much? So I have my podcast, as you mentioned, not just the Tudors, and I tend that comes out twice a week. So we tend to record the podcasts in the first week of the month. Um, and so, so I sort of read for those and record those then. So that, in theory, leaves me with three weeks uh, to do other work. Um, during the working day, I do the school run. I take the dog for the walk, for a walk. I come back. I start slightly disturbed. It's already 10 o'clock by that point. And then it depends. So at the moment, I'm also judging a book prize. I'm judging the Women's Prize for Nonfiction. And so um, I have, think I have a slightly teenage kind of working rhythm in that I thought I would write in the morning and then read in the late afternoon. But actually, I kind of gear up as the day goes on. So my writing is better later in the day. It used to be brilliant between 4 and 7 p.m., but of course, most of those hours are missing when you're a parent. Um, so I, I I sort of do whatever the other work is first, and then I kind of have the the, the afternoons to to write. Okay. And when you are writing, are you completely cut off from the world? Basically, I want to know how you focus, because in this age of mass distraction, it's hard. Well, I mean, Cal Newport... I know you've um, spoken to him and I found his I found his work really uh, important in helping me find practices that made that work and also inspiring me actually that I could do the sort of size of job that I do in an average working week which when I became a parent was uh, felt more of a challenge so I used to work yeah get really squeezed I used to work well into the evenings the weekends I remember when I met my husband that I started working six days a week as opposed to seven days a week. And that was a big deal. So, but now of course it's not anything like that. So I think it's all about practice. So you get, the, there's a, a sense of uh, getting into a rhythm. There can still be a moment where, particularly if something's difficult or not quite working and I'm having to push harder and think harder, then the temptation comes to, why don't I just um, pop onto Instagram or whatever? And sometimes I give in and sometimes I don't. But I do now kind of pause and try and recognise that I'm being tempted, essentially. Um, so I do, I have in the past used software like Freedom to turn things off, but I don't really regularly use that now. It's just practice. It's just listen and listening in that pause, that moment of going, is that really what I want to be doing? Don't I really want to be progressing with this thing? And I mean, the thing is also, I'm just very lucky. Like I love my work and sometimes it's hard, but I, I, I adore what I'm doing and which seems an enormous privilege that I spend my days doing what I do. So, you know, my main problem really is um, at the end of the day is kind of tearing myself away from it and being present enough to then be go inside and be a good mother and partner and that sort of thing. So, um, but certainly there are temptations. I've just been working in this kind of way now for nearly 20 years because I you know from doing my doctorate onwards I've had to be quite self-disciplined and so it's just practice really. Okay so in those moments where the impulse comes up more often than not you will win that battle. I'd say about 50% of the time I win the battle. <laughs> yeah I've, I've literally had to buy a mobile phone locking case which was suggested to me, not by Cal Newport, by Johan Hari, who's written on similar things about stolen focus, putting those barriers to entry in. I think that's really valuable. But I would say that probably the temptation comes up a lot less than it used to. 
I now recognize that I have this important thing that I'm doing and I recognize what how that is pulling me away from it, even if it's masquerading as being part of my work. And so there are times I would should say as well that I, you know, use scheduling tools for posting on social media and that sort of thing. Because otherwise I think if you post and you want to go back and check if you've got responses. And so I try and disconnect the content from the time that I'm posting it, if at all possible, so that that isn't, I'm not being pulled in that way. And I do, I'm afraid now use social media more to broadcast than to receive. Because I think if you're set in reception mode, then it just destroys your working day. It becomes much more like work if you do it like that as well. It's this thing you need to do. And therefore, it doesn't have all the satisfying rewards system that social media has built in. And when you are writing, when you used to do your four to seven stretch, do you find that you get into flow at that point? Do you really lose yourself in the work? Yes, I do get into flow. I mean, sometimes you have to battle to get in there. And that the reason I think four to seven was the good stretch is because I had been trying to do it since 12. So it isn't <laughs> that I, st- I can sit down at four and then it's like beautiful. It's that I've been battling for several hours before that point And then suddenly there's the breakthrough. Right. OK. So sort of 12 till four is the battle stage, the resistance stage. And then four to seven is the smooth sailing. For example, yes. Okay, I know that you've, for example, gave a talk at a girls' school relatively recently for young people who are perhaps, let's say, of school age now. And we didn't have those distractions, thank God, that they all have now. Do you ever get asked about this kind of thing, about how to do sustained deep work, about focusing, anything like that? Does anyone ever ask you about that or is it just tend to be about your lessons from history? Yeah, tend to people just tend to ask me about my lessons from history. I, I think that we have this amazing advantage in that we didn't have mobile phones around when we were 13 and 14 and 15. Oh, God, I know. Our brains were being rewired. That wasn't part of the reward system that we learned. It is entirely possible to have learnt it since and to have have that kind of um, way of feeling rewarded. And But I think the more that one can read about the fact that it is like playing the lottery or, you know, or um, the slot machines or that it's like those strokes. And, I, you know, I've spent quite a lot of time. It's gambling. It's like gambling. Yeah. Basically. And getting that yeah. reward and have, and also having a conversation with myself now that I have to sort of say, so when I'm have that, 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 you know, the moment of like, oh, I'd quite like to go and look at it. I think, is that really what you're looking for? Yeah. That's the, that's the pause for me. It's like, is that you know, what you're really looking for is an answer to this difficult thing. And you, you know, and actually you're distracting yourself from it. So, so in terms of advice, I, I mean, I point everybody, all my students until now, I point them towards deep work uh, because that book, the book, yeah, the book, I think it's so important. Yeah. Um, and because I think that, I think that it is the one thing that they will not be able to replace with AI or with computers. Like I think that human intelligence and focus and thought is is our USB as USP as humans, and I think that therefore um, it's something that if you can you can stand head and shoulders above other people that you're competing with for jobs or whatever it is you're doing if you are willing to undergo the hardships of doing that. You know, and I did the thing where you give up all social media, including WhatsApp, for a month, and for the first two days it felt existential. You know, it felt like. Oh my god! I have no friends. I have, I have, I have, I have nothing going on for me. I'm 
I'm laughing. And um and I think it only took two days just because I'd been working I'd been working hard on reducing the infringements of social media and things like that into my life. Like for example, on my phone, I don't have anything that comes up with red flags. Nothing is allowed to notify me with a red flag on my screen. Um that sort of thing. Because I I I, I genuinely object to um to being interrupted. I, but I, so, you know, my inclination is towards introversion, introversion, introversion anyway, but I think that I um, would, I do think that these qualities and building them into your working life is absolutely crucial to success in the future, really. Yes. I think it's interesting that Cal Newport wrote a book before Deep Work called So Good They Can't Ignore You. How are you going to stand out? And that ability to really focus for long periods of time is the easiest way to do that, particularly if you can couple it with something that you love. I read his third book, Digital Minimalism, which argues about reducing smartphones, social media use very persuasively. To me, that's as essential a book as deep work. And I always think just there are these little things. I don't go on the train a huge amount these days um, since since quitting the BBC full-time with the writing the book and whatever else. But when I do, I'm always amazed when you look down the platform, everyone's head down into the phone. And I just think even those little moments, if you're in the queue, if I'm waiting to get a train, if I'm on a train, sitting there and doing nothing, it's like a, a meditative practice that I will try and schedule in. And that's not to say I still don't chastise myself regularly for massively overusing my phone. I think it's something historians like you will look back on in decades or certainly century and go, that was insane. I completely agree. I mean, I have the same thing. I was on the tube yesterday and I always look up and down the carriage and how many people are on their devices. There's this wonderful award-winning book that described the mobile phone as a votive so i always think of it as people holding their votive what does that mean like as in their the the thing that they're worshiping their little relic or their little like their their little holy icon and i try and read a book or i try a lot to just be bored and let my mind think because that's the other thing is just kind of having time to think is really important so i go for this walk every day with my dog i find that time really useful uh, for thinking through things and since I've been judging the prize I feel like I ought to be listening to books on audible more as I'm doing my walk and sometimes I do but I also find that I need that time it sets me up for the day really to to think through whatever it is I'm thinking through and I often dictate voice notes to myself as I'm walking which will be a bit of writing that I'll use later or something like that do you use otter no otter.ai check it out because it will transcribe it for you there and then and then it will be written up for when you get home okay no i totally agree with you and just quickly uh, to add to this like so when i was finishing my book i was working um at a david lloyd and i would do sort of a four three four hour stretch and then i would feel like my mind would be going oh you know you can't stop you haven't done enough whatever but i would force myself to go for a swim and then like a steam or a sauna and I wouldn't be consciously thinking about my book at all. And then I'd come back and have a lunch. So I'd have like an hour off and I'd obviously get the endorphins going. But also I would come back and I would have so many new, fresh ideas about what I wanted to write about by not, you know, occupying my mind with either the work that I was working on or by then going into that default of, of scrolling. So I think what you said there about being bored or the walk you go and have with your dog, 
yeah, like we have to have these times to allow the mind, the brain to work on its own away from our conscious attention, because that's where that's where creativity comes from, I think. Yes, and there are yeah, absolutely. And there are two other things I would say uh, as well. One is that I have a goal for how much I want to write each day and I try to stop when I hit it. It's like a thousand words a day, it's nothing. But when I get further on, it's like, it's more. But if I'm really in the flow, I won't stop, but I will stop fairly soon after that because what you want is to be wanting to get back down to it the next day. And the other thing is, so if you've got it, there's this wonderful line, hold on a second. I have amended these pronouns. This is by GM Trevelyan. That which compels the historian to scorn delights and live laborious days is the ardour of her own curiosity to know what really happened long ago in the land of mystery, which we call the past. To peer into that magic mirror and see fresh figures there every day is a burning desire that consumes and satisfies her all her life and carries her each morning, eager as a lover, to the library and the muniment room. And that is such a good quote. Isn't that great? So I, I want to be rushing back to it. And so the other thing is writing every day. Where possible, it's not always possible, but where possible, I write every day. Every day during the week and Saturday mornings if I can um, negotiate it. Um, so th that's, the, that's the ideal is because I find two days of the weekend off is a bit much for my brain. Mondays are just hard, otherwise really hard to get back into the flow. So I find if I can keep it because all I need it to do is keep ticking over in my subconscious. The overnights, consecutive days are the secret to success. Susie, this has been worth the price of the admission alone. That was a fantastic quote. And I think that's such good advice. And something I read, a quote, which is nowhere near as evocative as that one, is basically only do as much as you can recover from tomorrow or something like that. Whereas I really like that idea of doing it enough but leave yourself wanting more so that you're eager to get back to it the next day. That's genius. Right, listen, you're not just a author, obviously, broadcaster too. You're clearly very eloquent, always have been, in terms of explaining complexity with clarity, which you have to do in your written work, but as well broadcasting. What advice would you have about that? And even perhaps about being concise, which isn't, for example, my forte. It's not my forte in my writing, I have to say. But in terms of explaining complex ideas simply, well, that seems the heart of the challenge. And I feel that it is incumbent on me to be able to explain it in a way that somebody who's never heard it about before will, will understand. They say, you know, can you explain it to a bright 12-year-old or 10-year-old or something? That's what it is. Um, and so the intellectual work is on breaking it down into... Uh, simple enough concepts so that it can be understood. And academia has traditionally been very snobby about that and feels that you must put things in great highfalutin prose for it to be worthy of paying attention to. And I have always counselled all my students to do the exact opposite. I, I, a particular bugbear of mine, for example, is the word utilise. If you're speaking French, that's fine. If you're speaking English, <laughs> use the word use. There is absolutely no justification for putting all those extra letters in. And my sense is that you should always be making everything as clear as possible. And sometimes that is by using a beautiful, um, obscure word because it most clearly defines something. And that I love the, you know, the beauty and poetry of prose as well. But I think that with 
speaking and broadcasting as much as with writing, the onus is on the author to convey it to the reader. And I and I also feel like as a reader, that that's true too. So if, uh, this is about confidence as much as anything else, but like if I'm reading um, a book and I don't understand it or it's boring, I don't think it's because I'm stupid. I think it's because it's a bad book. And I think that it's, I think that therefore that it's the writer's job to keep the reader. And so in my writing, like that's, it's all me. That's my job. So yeah, you keep that front and center in your mind. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think this is something as well that applies to other industries. Just to quickly take it out of the world of broadcasting and books and academia. Every industry in my experience has their own jargon, their own language, you know, like marketing speak or whatever else, right? You know, I've had experiences making podcasts for companies or whatever, and they'll talk in this language. And I'll ask them just quickly, what actually do you mean by that? And often they can't even explain. And I think what you've just said there about, okay, can you explain this to a a bright 10 or 12 year old? It's such an obvious thing, but it's, it's again, a bit like deep work. I think one of the most valuable skills you can have is to be able to explain complex things in simple ways so that anyone can get it. And it's very challenging at times, but it's um, very undervalued. It's very challenging because you really have to understand it. <laughs> and it's much easier to just coast along and not quite understand something. Yeah. Right. Before we dive into some of your history lessons, Susie, I was um, perusing your social media feed, as you do. And I saw you retweet something that I have subsequently retweeted. And it's basically someone tweeting in protest at the modern propensity for supermarkets to go full self-checkout, which is a proper bugbear of mine. And I can only assume it infuriates you too. Well, infuriates me. I mean, I don't like the experience as a consumer. This is not my skill set. Right? I, I have very limited skill sets, and that is not one of them. Scanning, I can never find the blooming thing. Anyway, but more seriously, more seriously, these are people's jobs. These are people's jobs. Like these are these are um, jobs that are going to all go, and you're going to pass them all over to machines. And and the alternative is, as it said in that tweet, is you've got somebody who has to stand at the exit. If you to or to stand near those self-service machines. So also think about the quality of uh, the day for the people manning that job. They're standing up all day long, which is really bad for them, as opposed to sitting and and scanning things and be able to stand some of the time. Just the whole thing seems to me like a a cost-cutting exercise that we're being sold as convenience, but it isn't convenient and it does other people out of a job. There's nothing good about it. No, something I would add to that as well. I think it it starves us of connection. Now, I always have little chats with people working at tills, behind counters, working in restaurants, that kind of thing drives my wife crazy. But I love it. It's those little moments of human connection. To me, they are vital. They're invigorating, however brief. And it seems like there are more and more barriers to connection and community. And I know, for example, you often get asked the question, if you could live in any age, it would be this age. Because, for example, of central heating and warm water and all the mod cons that we've got. Antibiotics. Antibiotics, yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Painkillers, yes. Comfy mattresses. Hospital births. Hospital um... births, yeah, okay. I wonder what you think about this. 
surely there can't have been any time in history where loneliness and that lack of community and connection would have been so problematic as it is now. Just thinking it through, because I'm very hesitant always to say it never happened before in history. But I think we are. I think we are atomized. I think we are much more atomized. Um, I think it's exaggerated actually in cities. When I lived in London, I felt like it, I didn't know my. I only knew a couple of my neighbours, but uh, it was more. It was exaggerated there. Now I live in a village community, and I know more people. But um, and there's a bit more of a sense of community. But that may be where I lived rather than an urban rural thing. But I think it's certainly true that the way that we um, respond to our elders in the global north is um, is a sort of abandonment, and uh, we haven't got a kind of social system that means that we care for people when they most need care, which is why we end up with the structures that we have. And we also, and we, you know, it also means that we've you've got generally speaking women those they're not always looking after young children in the isolation of their homes uh, which is disabling and and very difficult and you know everywhere there are people who are lonely and you know you can you know obviously I mean, the reason i think that the urban situation does end up being more lonely is because you're even more lonely when you're in the midst of people who aren't paying attention. Um, but I think you're right. I do think it's a real problem. And um, I think it is it, we're one of the characterising problems of our age. When they look back and they say, gosh, they were you know, dumb walking the entire time and they were um, not connecting with each other, the, the loneliness will be something that historians will point to as well, I think. That said, as I pointed out, you have said that you would rather live now than at any time in history for a multitude of reasons, a few of which you've already listed. Does working to understand the past, immersing yourself in the history of this and other na- this nation and you know around Europe and wherever else, does that give you psychological comfort in the present? Oh yeah. I mean, because however bad things are, we don't have plague every 16 years. We don't have epidemics um, or that we had one pandemic, but, you know, we don't have the sweating sickness and influenza and um, syphilis and, you know, all these things running riot throughout society because no one knows what's going on. We don't we don't go in the north, at least we don't starve if harvests fail. Most people in the period I work on, which is the 16th century, would have experienced at least one, probably two or three periods of dearth in their lives. So that the starvation was this spectre that they lived in fear of. And that's before you even think about things like infant mortality. A quarter of all children died before they reached the age of one. You know, very high proportion of mothers died in childbirth. So you were you got pregnant, there was no birth control so you got pregnant <laughs> and then you're potentially facing a death sentence like so I think about these people all the time like I go through my life you know I'm, re- I'm writing a moment about um, a new history of Henry VIII's Queens and I go through my life thinking about things like oh but Catherine of Aragon had this and I think about the fact that she went into menopause in her early 40s we're pretty sure we don't know but probably and she didn't have any of the 
support that modern women have when they reach menopause if they choose it hrt you know and i think about the sort of the magic of all the all of the all of the the ways in which we're provided for and looked after in our society so i yeah i spend a lot of time thinking about the past and the other day the other day we had a power cut and my child who's four complained about the candles i thought the candles were kind of nice and um and after he'd complained about the candles, I said, listen, we are living like kings in the 16th century right now. We have beeswax candles. They're not made of tallow, so we can't smell the fat of burning animals. We've got loads of them burning everywhere. And most of the time we don't need them because we've got electric light. So make anyway, did my little rant about history. Yeah. So I do think it gives you a sense of uh, perspective. The perspective element of immersing yourself in history and comparing what we have now to previous ages, do you think if people did a bit more of that or if a bit more emphasis was put on that, there might be a little, people might feel a little happier with their lot? There are real and present dangers. There are things that people are experiencing that cannot be eliminated um, by comparison uh, and the horrors of the world now do not become less horrific by comparing them to others. But at the same time, I, you know, why I write is partly because I feel like I need to do justice to people who've lived in the past and give them a fair hearing. There's a sort of um, a kind of necromancy going on and a kind of post uh, posthumous judicial system at work. But also I think it's about trying to provoke empathy in people of today who are reading about them because I think empathy is one of the most important qualities we can have as humans and I think that uh, the study of history can make you kinder because it can make you aware of what other people have gone through you know and and we 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 struggle to to think about people geographically as well as historically who are different and other than us but dealing with people's otherness is the heart of what um, empathy involves it means thinking yourself into someone else's situation and I think it's crucial to everything we do it's crucial to being a parent it's crucial to being a lover a friend, um, a, a good citizen. So m- my sense is that history is the particular weapon that I have been given, but other people have different approaches that will help us see each other as four humans. And so when I write about people in the past, again, about the, the, the Queens most recently, it's because I feel like they haven't been given full humanity in the, the treatment that they've had in the historical books. And I want to do something which restores that to them as far as it's possible to do that, according to the sources. Yes, that otherness, that inability to empathise with the other, whoever the other may be. And actually, I again, while I was doing a bit of research, I read about, you know, when you've been on your travels, for example, you've spent a bit of time in India, I know, and fundamentally everyone's the same kids laugh about the same things wherever they are on the planet and our inability to get over this tribalistic impulse that we have to see people as the other and to be able to dehumanize them and therefore to be able to to treat them 
barbarically, which is obviously still going on around the world, that tribalistic tendency to me is at the root of such a huge proportion of the world's problems and ills, that inability to recognise our shared humanity, that othering of other people, which has always gone on, but it, it's still such a such a problematic thing. I think that's absolutely right. And I think we see it also in the way that we talk about good and bad. So we are obviously good and other people are bad. That's how we differentiate it. And to be fair, like superhero movies uh, kind of play into that uh, discourse that we have. And um, there's a way, basically, we like to have things in binary. So we like to be, you know, we're good and they're bad. And that can be, you know, we're human, they're not human. We wouldn't put it in those words today, but that's effectively what we're doing when we talk about people in these disparaging ways. I think you're right that recognising the humanity of others is the really challenging thing. Perhaps it is the central challenge of life, actually, is to recognise that, Okay, here's another lovely quote. So um, this is also G.M. Trevelyan, a great historian that I love. He says, The poetry of history lies in the quasi-miraculous fact that once on this earth, on this particular spot of ground, walked other men and women, as actual as we are today, thinking their own thoughts, swayed by their own passions, but now all gone, as surely as we ourselves shall shortly be gone, like ghosts at cockcrow. And that sense that other people are thinking their own thoughts and swaying their own passions, but as actual as we are, seems to me the heart of the matter. It's the heart of living, really. It's recognising that humanity in others. And as important as us as well, right? It's like we've always been into status and hierarchy, and now maybe it's, let's say, celebrity and politics, whereas back in the day it was royalty and that kind of thing. So the, you know how we've defined status has changed, but that propensity to be like well this is a more important person than someone else still is another one of those programs that runs in the background that we sometimes fall prey to but recognizing you know that fundamentally the idea that someone's more important than anyone else is once you get past the bells and whistles bollocks (laughs) and it underpins the great evils of our history it underpins the enslavement of millions of africans it it underpins the treatment of Indians during the time of the Raj. I, you know, you, you could point to countless other examples which say it was all about somebody thinking they were superior to another person. And generally speaking, for large portions of the, for centuries at least, um, that's been based uh, that's been you know based on the color of someone's skin. Uh, but it's also been men how men treat, treated women. Um, it's <laughs> there all sorts of other ways of looking at it, but the, the it's exactly that. It's about thinking that you are the person who's good and you are the person who's more important, and that allows you to do terrible things to other people. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your specialism amongst others, is the Tudor period. You're one of its most distinguished scholars. I've heard you talk about it as a period which marks the beginning of what we consider the modern world. And so I've done a bit of reading up. I mean, it is a fascinating time, isn't it? Obviously, you've on the one hand, you've got things like Shakespeare, but on the other hand, you've got you know these hundreds of years of witches being burnt and just the level of brutality, the torture instruments that I've been reading about. I mean, just unbelievable. What drew you to the Tudor period? Like, what do you love about it? And also, in terms of those parallels, I know you've even drawn parallels between the Tudor period and Brexit. Can you just link where we are now to the Tudor period a little bit? Mm. Why I started being interested in it is goes back to my last year at university where we were given... Um, a task which was a comparative history essay and there were a number of topics we could choose and I chose one on religious violence and I ended up writing about religious violence in 16th century France and religious violence in 19th, 20th century India. And then when I decided sometime later to do a doctorate, I was choosing between doing it on one of those things. And so in the end, I chose to work on France. So my first sort of real academic study was on 16th century France and then I got a job at Hampton Court <laughs> as I as I was just sort of finishing up the doctorate already so I thought I was um and so that I, I came back over the channel and a little bit earlier in the century to work on Henry VIII and I've sort of been there ever since really and what fascinates me about the period is that it is the beginning of lots of things that we think of um as modern so printing for example, technology, you know, imagine pre-printing, pre-printing -print, you know, and we have um, it's not such pleasant things like the introduction of guns. We have the first um, person who was assassinated with a gun in London in 1536. We have imagery. So I was at an exhibition yesterday of Holbein, which is a, 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 the Queen's Gallery at Buckingham Palace. And you've got these incredible preparatory sketches that Holbein did of the elite of the Tudor court. And it is as if we are standing in front of them. You know, they're so well realised by comparison to sort of pre-Renaissance art where it's just less well formed. It doesn't look as lifelike. So there's there's all sorts of ways in which um, the modes of discourse are the same 
you know, as ours. It's also the beginning of a way of thinking that challenges authority and being told how things are with the Reformation. It's a kind of rethinking of of how you are made right with God, but it has implications for understanding everything in terms of do you do just what you're told or do you think about it yourself? Is this something you do or is something that someone else does for you? I mean, tr- traditionally speaking, we would have said, you know, it's the beginning of empire and the beginning of navy. And so it's the beginning of all sorts of um, things for better or worse that then affect the next hundreds of centuries. And I think why I'm fascinated about by it is all these changes, but also it's it's a period in which the sort of sources that survive for it give us insight into people and character and motivation without becoming as overwhelming as they do by the time you get to the 19th and 20th centuries. So it is in theory possible for someone in a lifetime of scholarship to get their head round that period of time, I think. You know, once you start getting interested in something, you, you just sort of layer up or you kind of you have another metaphor would be kind of like you've got a skeleton and you sort of keep you you're clothing it somehow in flesh. And and so I feel like um as I go on and the more I know, the more I'm interested in it. And just in terms of the the Brexit link, can you just explain that one? Yes. I mean it's a slightly it's a slightly rubbish link, but the so Henry VIII broke with the Roman Catholic Church, and in so doing, um, he essentially was creating uh, a schism, cutting England off from from Christendom, which was the rest of Europe. <laughs> um, and so it seemed to me that Brexit was a little bit like Henry VIII and the break with Rome. <laughs> I like that. Um, just quickly, actually, I didn't realise. So you grew up actually not far from here and you went to non-such high school, right? Yes. Near non-such park, which is like my wife and my favourite park, beautiful park. And I've always said it's called non-such park because Henry VIII said there's none such park as beautiful as this. I only found out during research that's wrong. It's actually it was the palace he was talking about, not the park. It, it's the it's the palace. It's palace, yeah. Non-such palace. Interesting that at that period, growing up close to his famous non-such palace, you've gone on to be one of his like most famous biographers. Do you find that a nice symmetry? Yeah, I'm sure these things were seeded early in ways that I you know, couldn't control. When I was at non-such, you know, therefore at a school right next to where his palace had been, I was walking down Anne Boleyn's way to get to school every day. <laughs> That's amazing. It's like, surely that, you know, these things become kind of written in you at some level that you can't avoid. And, you know, that area, of course, is completely dominated with mock Tudor housing stock and, and indeed some actual Tudor housing stock in the form of Whitehall in Cheam. Um, and, you know, I went to Hampton Court and that sort of thing. So I, I feel like... It was inescapable. Obviously, nothing in history is inevitable, but some things are pretty hard to dodge, I think. Amazing. We touched on the othering of people and you know how this is like the central issue that we have to wrestle with as human beings. And obviously, one group who certainly got othered and have been for centuries, millennia, are women. And so you spoke about, well, you wrote about the witch trials, didn't you? 
So they were 300 odd years, 1450 to 1750. You gave me a very brief overview of what that period was like. Can you just explain, if you can, like how it must have been for women in that period? Because it didn't take much to be accused and then tortured and killed. So generally speaking, this was an age that was uh, patriarchal, which is to say the men dominated in positions of power and rule and the cultural values uh, upheld masculinity and the control of women. And so it's men who have the offices of government. um, It's men who are ruling in the church and so on. So at a sort of public level, it's men who are in power. And there's also really important prevailing ideas that come from ideas about the body and from scripture about women being weaker than men, um, morally, physically, intellectually, uh, that they need um, men to help them stand upright. And so the connection to witchcraft is that it was thought possible for the devil to tempt men and women But as women were weaker morally and more susceptible to sin, particularly uh, sexual sin, which is one way the devil particularly got them, uh, they would more easily um, succumb to temptation and welcome him in and promise to do whatever he told them to do. And they would do this um, normally because he would say that he would give them everything they wanted, which tended to be a good meal and um, some company. So loneliness perhaps was a problem in the 16th century as well. But um, so we find that the across Europe, um, 80% of all of those accused of witchcraft were women. Um, and so, so men could be accused, were accused. And in some places they predominate actually in um, Estonia, Normandy, uh, Russia, Iceland. You get more men in, or at least equal numbers of men and women. But in England, it was like 90% women. And uh, where people were accused of witchcraft in, it's not quite, it's a bit more complicated in England, but on the continent, then torture was used to ascertain the truth. Because it was thought that witchcraft was sort of crime with a hole in it, as it's been described. It's something that happens, but then the devil covers it up. So the usual judicial measure the usual judicial method, which is to have two witnesses to a crime, doesn't work because the devil has hidden it. And so if you can't have witnesses, then you need a confession. And so alleged witches were tortured in order to confess to being a witch, uh, which pain does, right? And actually, it's not just pain, it's delirium and hallucination and fear um, and, uh, you know, a sense of what is right and what your memories are or get confused by the process of torture. So um, that was what was going on in short. I mean, there's there's a lot I can say about witchcraft. I could keep you here for hours. And there's also a lot to say about women in the period of time, you know, some more hours as well. But that's it in a nutshell, I guess. Okay. Now, I've read quite a lot recently, or I've noticed quite a lot recently, people talking about like the rise of the feminine principle. So like in Chinese medicine, for example, and, you know, they talk about yin and yang. So yin being the feminine principle, intuitive, empathetic, that word you used before, sensitive. Now, this doesn't mean, for example, a yin is 
a woman. Men and women can have both of these, obviously, in them. But I wonder, because it has been so dominated by men and by yang, let's say, that egoic masculine energy for, well, for millennia, right? For as long as, as long as we know. I wonder if you think what your take on that is, like what's been the impact of that? A guy I quite like, Eckhart Tolle, he talks about because of that, he believes there would have been less war, less destruction. We wouldn't have declared war on nature to the same degree. We're out of balance. The ego impulse for power and accumulation and domination, it's been too out of balance in that way for such a long period of time. Now, in the last, however, I don't know, let's say since the 60s, it's gradually ever so slightly got back the other way. And, you know, I do think it's important that it's about balance. It's not about going too far one way or the other. But fundamentally, we've seen a bit and, and it's even in the last sort of five, 10 years, it's going even more back this way. But what's your take on that? What I've just said there, you know, this suppression of this, the feminine principle and the effect it's had on the world around us. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think absolutely war is the first thing. So I agree that the feminine and the masculine as qualities are present in both men and women. And some women have very highly developed masculine qualities and vice versa. But I think that the dominance of the masculine over the centuries absolutely means that, you know, that war. I mean, for the two centuries, particularly, I focus on 16th and 17th centuries, the major societies of Europe were at war 95% of the time. Um, and, uh, you know, vast numbers of people died as a result of that. You know, we think in the Civil War, for example, in England, that happened in the 1640s, the proportion of people who died was higher than the proportion of the population that died during the First World War. So it, it's huge. So that, I, and I think, you know, if you look at other evidence, there's very good evidence from um, India that where women are, this is skipping ahead to the last, you know, 50, 40, 50 years, but where women are given income, uh, say through microfinancing initiatives and that sort of thing, they tend to use that money for the support of the whole family and indeed sometimes the community, whereas men who received money would spend on their needs and then secondary needs being things like cigarettes and alcohol and then secondarily consider the concerns of the family. And that, of course, it's a huge stereotype, but it's not just a stereotype. It's also based in lots of statistical <laughs> evidence. And um, so there is a sense that having women also running things um, in, well, you know, we say at the, you know, on boards, for example, but, you know, just running things generally is going to incline society, hopefully, if, we, if it follows the evidence so far, towards something that is more inclusive, more community focused, more uh, concerned with empathy for others and less with shooting guns at each other. <laughs> well summed up. And it's clear, this is clearly something important to you as evidence, for example, by you being a judge on the nonfiction prize award due that you were on. So this is important to you, right? Yes. So I um, we're doing we've got the, the inaugural year of the Women's Prize for Nonfiction. The Women's Prize for Fiction has been running for nearly 30 years. This is the first year of a prize being awarded for nonfiction. And there's really good evidence about how much 
men's books are, are regarded and considered in public in a way that women's aren't. So, for example, in 2022, 75% of all review space in major newspapers was of non-fiction books was books by men. Um, uh, 33% of all the books that were in the top 100, the roundup of the year, uh, or the people's best books of the year, were by women non-fiction books. Um, the gender pay gap is actually increasing for authors. And um, also, of the over seven prizes that include non-fiction over the last 10 years, women have been shortlisted or won 35% of the time. And you either come to the conclusion that women don't write as well as men, just a bit crapper, or you think, oh, maybe there's something that's skewing this a little bit. And my sense is that we, the reason for wanting to do the prize is because I think that women's voices are important. I think that women's perspectives are important. So, you know, I'm reading books on history and science and sport and nature and, you know, technology and memoir and grief and all sorts of things. And the perspective that women bring quite often is a very different perspective than if a man had written that book. Again, I know I'm talking generalizations and it's going to annoy some people, but I, from my experience of reading all of these books for the prize and, you know, before that, that feels very much the case. Yeah. So just following on from this, on this theme, then, like I know that you did a talk at a school when you were talking about lessons from women in the past. And I know there were some 14, 15 of them, but these are obviously historical figures who you found to be particularly interesting and inspiring and glean some lessons applicable to today from. So which of those would you say stand out for you that you would be happy to share with us now? Gosh, there are an awful lot of them. Um, so one, for example, is from Nur Jahan, who was the 20th final and favourite wife of Jahangir, the Mughal emperor of India in 1611. And she carved out a role as empress of India with unprecedented levels of power and influence for a woman. She became Jahangir's true co-sovereign. And we have coins that are issued in her name. She signed orders in her own right. She designed tombs and gardens. She rescued Jahangir when he was taken prisoner by rebels. And, and she once killed a tiger and only emperors were allowed to hunt tigers. And so my lesson here for this was, because this was all about leadership, was that ambition is not a dirty word. Women should be ambitious as well. But also, you know, a lesson from somebody like Marguerite de Navarre, who was the sister of the French king, Francois Premier, who was a great patron of the arts and a writer. Um, and she was also a sort of thought leader, I guess we'd say. So she encouraged her, her brother to invest in cutting edge art and architecture and education and it's because of her I think and his her influence that Francois built the Renaissance palaces that we find in the Loire but also because of him that he uh, because of her that he invited Leonardo da Vinci to France um, that's why the Mona Lisa is in the Louvre so she's the kind of mother of the Renaissance in France and so the lesson there is that the leader must inspire others. But also I think there's kind of female qualities. Catherine of Aragon, I talked about how she, every Monday, Thursday, she would wash the feet of poor women. And so it seems to me that being a leader is also about um, serving 
like good leaders get their hands dirty. Anyway, so I, I could go on. I was thinking about people from all around the world um, and the examples they gave. Oh, I'll tell you, give, I'll give you one last one. This is so too good to leave out. This is Anna Nzinga, who was the first Angola of Ngongo, which was a kingdom in present-day Angola. And this is when Ngongo was under attack uh, by both African neighbours, actually, and the Portuguese. And in 1621, she met the governor general of, of the Portuguese, forget his name. And when um, she went into the audience chamber, she saw that there were gorgeous cloths spread out on the floor for her to sit on. And he was sitting in a chair. And so she immediately gestured to an attendant who fell to all fours. And the Nzinga sat on the, her attendant's back. So she was eye to eye with the man. And only then did she start negotiations and went on to be very successful in limiting Portuguese expansion and stopping slave raiding in her kingdom. And so the lesson there is you get to decide how people treat you. Demand equality. That's a beautiful lesson. Okay, listen, final question for you, Susie. We tend to look back with incredulity at eras from history to a certain degree. Certainly, you know, as I was looking at the Tudor period and the torture methods and stuff, like the brutality was just so stark. It's almost unthinkable. And as you said, we tend to think, okay, but we're, we're good and they're bad. And there's also that what end of history phenomenon of, okay, we've now, we've reached a period where, you know, we are now fully evolved, where clearly we're not. What do you think we will look at from this period in 100 years or so and think, I can't believe they did that? Animals, the way we treat animals, um, that we eat them, that we uh, take them to abattoirs to slaughter them that we separate calves from their cows, uh, their mothers, that sort of thing. Um, I think they will look back and I actually almost think this even sometimes about my dogs. I think I basically have enslaved these animals, right? They don't have any choice about whether they're here or not. Um, so I wonder, I mean, they have a very comfortable enslavement, but still the same. They don't have freedom of choice. <laughs> um, so I think the way we treat animals will be one of the great sort of stains on us, obviously, Obviously, with the climate emergency, which is, I think, what we should now call it, um, that uh, we have been very sluggish to act on. And, you know, the thing is, we just don't have any defence, really, because it's not like we don't know, and it's not like we don't know what we should do. We just are ransoming our grandchildren's lives for the comfort of our own. And... Yeah, so I think they'll look back with horror, actually, on our behaviour. And the um, the way that we are self-medicating with social media and mobile phones, um, um, that's going to be a big one. That's going to, you know, they're going to look at those in the future and think of them like we think of... Cigarettes. Cigarettes. So I was actually thinking more like um, like drugs, like, pro you know, proper class A drugs, that... Yeah. The ones you get addicted to, you know, those ones. That I think that's that's the sort of comparison so you know but there's but we know all of these things that's the thing it's not it's not like the the historians of the future can have any great revelations that we don't know we know them all we just carry on i'm really glad you said that about the animals that's, that's something my wife and i have discussed a lot completely agree the way that we treat animals and nature more broadly is pretty 
barbaric these days. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a vegetarian, but I don't think everybody ha- I don't think everybody has to be a vegetarian. I don't think everybody has to be vegan. In fact, the logical consequences of consequences of le- veganism need thought as well. But I think that we absolutely, as a society, have to reduce the amount of meat. And I know this has consequences for farmers. Um, I'm aware of what I'm saying. But I think we need to change the way that we see uh, the eating of meat and animal products more broadly, because, you know, milk is what also involves that sacrifice. Um, And we need to just reconfigure the way that we treat animals and the way that we deal with them and and the industrial scale on which we do it, in other words. So it doesn't mean that you can't ever eat a steak again or that you can't ever drink a glass of milk again, but it is about changing the amount that we do that and how we do it and how we rear those animals, I think. Final thing then, Susie, in terms of why people should pay more attention to history, what would you say? Like, why should people dive more into learning about the period that you have immersed yourself in and all the other periods in history? Like, what benefit does it have for people now? Well, I mean, for a start, it has the benefit that reading any book does, which is that you escape to a different world. And um, I think that you can travel back through time just as much as you can travel geographically from your armchair. Um, I think that it expands our minds and our sense of possibility, um, uh, possibility of what can go horribly wrong as much as what can go right. And it does that thing which we've talked about, which is that it takes you into someone else's world and makes you stand in their shoes and see things from their perspective. And I think that only in doing that can you hope to then try and do that with the people around you. So, you know, pick your drug, choose your century, choose the thing that interests you, just follow your interests, whatever you want to read about, it doesn't matter. But I think that the study of the past can open up this new way of seeing the present because you're engaging with lives lived and you know if I'm going to be sort of a pat about it I'd say like you know this is everything that's ever happened how can you not be interested in it <laughs> you know, there's something in it for everyone yeah so studying the past put simply as well can just make you more empathetic in the present Susie it's been um well, this is the longest chat we've had in a couple of decades, one-on-one. <laughs> I've really enjoyed chatting to you as I knew I would. Just congratulations on everything you've done. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast and lovely to see you. Lovely to see you too, Sai. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. I hope you enjoyed it. Before I go, a reminder that my debut book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself, is now available for pre-order. In it, I challenge the usual success evangelism we often hear about and ask why success is often unfulfilling and yet flow when our sense of self disappears is intrinsically enjoyable. The answer, I think, can be life-changing. The pre-order link to my book, which is published by Bloomsbury, is in the show notes.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.